pre-arrival planning is absolutely critical. I had a prospective client. He was about to bring a few million dollars to the UK. I said, speak to one of the tax guys here. We will save you around $600,000. The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond, with Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Bulent Osman, from uh, near enough London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, on the beautiful Northern California coast. And today uh, we have a really interesting guest and a subject matter expert around the issue of relocation. So if, um, especially our American listeners who might be considering moving to the UK, as an example, or certainly are involved in any sort of job move that might move them out of the country into the UK, then this particular episode is absolutely for them. And it's with a senior partner of a London law firm called Charles Avons. And Shelley, you know Charles, don't you? I do. And uh, yes, he is head of immigration at Collier Bristow. And, you know, I think what will be interesting to listen to is we tend to kind of think of relocation as just changing house. You know, I'm moving. Well, maybe I'm moving to another country, but I'm fundamentally just changing house. And yet, you know, the whole idea of relocating is fraught with all sorts of opportunities and problems, um, financial, cultural, uh, employment, um, all sorts of things. So I am interested, having been through this myself, mm-hmm. I am interested in listening to the advice and counsel and all that uh, Charles will give us. So it should be fun. Absolutely. And I'm pleased to say that Charles Avons has now joined us from uh, London in the UK. Hello, Charles. Nice to see you. Hi, Blunt. And hello, Shelley. How are you? Nice to see you. Very good to see you. So, Blunt, uh, Charles is somebody I've uh, known for a while now uh, in different capacities. And um, I thought it was particularly interesting to share his specialty on this podcast because, um, you know, relocating is one of those things that we don't uh, tend to focus on. And yet, as Charles and I have discussed, um, there are lots of elements to consider to to make this go smoothly. And in this more and more global world, it is something that deserves uh, the kind of consideration that at least we'll give a little bit to today. So um, first of all, how did you become an immigration specialist and what is an immigration specialist. Tell us a little bit about what the role is, first of all. Well, I started my life actually uh, was nearly nearly fourteen years ago. Actually, as as, a, as an employment lawyer, I specialised in UK employment law. Uh, a lot of the time, that was dealing with staff uh, in the UK and also staff um, sometimes coming into the UK. And so, um, cross qualifying in UK immigration law became quite a natural thing because most of it was basically dealing with the human element of, of the law, people's employment, and of course, then of course, people moving between countries. So I started with, with UK immigration law in 2015, uh, and and I've kind of never looked back. It's, it's a fascinating area because it's such a personal area of law. It's not a transactional area. It's it's an area where there is a, hu- a very very human element to what we do because relocating to another country um, 
no, it's a big change. It's a big step for for people. There's a lot of emotion with it. Um, they're moving into a new country. They don't know it. Things are potentially different. Um, can be a bit bit scary. But ultimately, if it's done properly and it's done uh, with a, a very human element to it, uh, and that's what we we try to be is to to, to hold people's hands. Um, through the process, then it can be a really exciting experience. Yeah, and and fulfilling. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I think of relocation and actually having done it myself at, well, a couple of points, one as a student, but more importantly, as an adult working, so, uh, you know, for a job, I tend to think off the top of my head of things like, you know, tax and visa and this and that and the other thing. But Tell me just a little bit about when you approach an assignment, a relocation um, assignment for somebody. There are lots of other elements, aren't there? I mean, tell me what you cover. And, and you mentioned the human parts of it. That's There's a lot there that doesn't have to only do with taxes and visas. No, no, absolutely. So when I speak to a potential client right at the very beginning, they're looking at coming to the UK. Um the initial call is just basically to find out why. What, 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 what is the reason that will be bringing them here? And, of course, we need to look at and establish whether or not what they want to do here will work from a point of view of getting a visa to do that because there are only certain visa routes into the UK. So if somebody in the initial uh, meeting uh, comes to us with something which just won't get them here, then we have to tell them pretty quickly. You're the bearer of bad news. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's no point There's no point not bearing them because ultimately this is giving a person a false impression that they, they, they can come here and that doesn't that helps nobody. So so have to establish whether or not what they're coming here to do or you know what route they can use uh, can be achieved. Now, once we've established that, then there's a lot more to it, of course. Uh, one of the critical things, as you mentioned, is whether or not um, they've got any form of pre-planning, tax planning in place so that we can look at their assets um, and ultimately what potentially they may be bringing by way of money into the UK to ensure that it is, is as a tax efficient way as possible to bring it in because nobody should come to the UK at all without having pre-arrival tax planning or estate mm-hmm. planning. I don't know that I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could unwittingly, you can unwittingly come into the UK and find that the things that you've put in place from a family point of view or personal point of view in the country that you're coming from just don't work in line with the UK tax system. And so you've got to be very careful. And a lot of people get caught out on this. They don't get the proper um, pre-arrival planning. And, I, and I'm going to use this word over and over and over again um, on this podcast um, about planning. Planning from just literally the beginning right to the end is utterly critical. It's the number one word. You, you don't just turn up. It, that, that's a huge mistake. And anybody who does that is, is being foolhardy. So, so Charles, do, do you, and you probably handle a variety of types of relocation, but I'm thinking there's, you know, the individual person who is relocating, um, maybe because they want to start a new life, but a business life is what I'm talking about. So there's a small 
you know, individual or a couple of people, then there's probably more of a corporate relocation, which could involve a team or a whatever, which, which are the ones that you handle more of? And what about the complexity? Uh, the, the reality is we deal with both. We deal with individuals and families, H&Ws or executives moving, but we also do a huge amount of work for companies relocating. So probably the company relocation is sometimes probably the most complex because clearly they've got to use a route to get into the UK to establish a UK subsidiary or potentially a complete startup. Now, there are two very specific visas that can be used for that. So if you're uh, an overseas company uh, and you're looking, you're an established overseas company and you've been trading for a minimum of three years, then you can send over to the UK uh, a senior uh, executive employee in, in that established business on something called the UK Expansion Worker Visa. And that allows that overseas company to expand into the UK and get a foothold here. So what it does is a bit of a laborious process, but it but if it's done very very carefully, then it then it really works. Um, you you ultimately need to apply from abroad for what we call a sponsor license, and that allows you uh, that that temporary sponsor license, if it's granted to the overseas company, will allow. Um, that company to send over somebody can be the founder. Um, it used to be the case that it couldn't be, but it but now that restriction has been taken away. Oh, that's interesting. So it can be the it can be the founder or the owner can now come over. It's not restricted to any form of shareholding. It used to be a restriction. You couldn't have somebody who owned more than ten percent of the shares. Now that's all been washed away. So you can come over or a senior employee ah. and set up on a temporary visa, this UK expansion worker visa, the UK company. That visa is for 12 months. It can be extended by a further 12 months. So you've got two years in which to basically get the company up and running. Mm. Uh, and then once it's up and running, you can then transfer internally in the UK from that UK expansion worker visa onto a skilled worker visa, mm -hmm. uh, which allows you to then be in the country for five years and then at the end of the five years achieve permanent residence. That means getting a green card, which allows you to live and work unfettered inside the UK. And and am I right in assuming that if one gets that kind of visa, that it covers the family? Because I remember I was granted a visa. I just called it a work visa at the time. This was a while ago. Yeah. But then to get my husband to be able to come as well and live in, you know, legally in the country, yeah. he had to be considered a trailing spouse, which I always thought was an excellent term. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, that was in itself another process. Is it, has it been streamlined a bit? Absolutely. It's called what we call a PBS dependent visa, so a points-based dependent visa. And what that allows is if the visa is granted, and that can work on the UK expansion worker visa, if that visa is granted, then the dependent, so it's, it's either it's a husband or a wife, it can be an unmarried partner as well, as long as they can prove that they've been together for a minimum of two years in a genuine and subsisting relationship. 
they can come to the UK and any children who are under the age of 18 years old, okay. not over the age of 18, they're considered adults in their own right. Okay. Um, but any any dependent, any child dependent under the age of 18 can join uh, the lead visa holder in the UK. And those visas are fantastic. The PBS dependent visa is incredibly flexible. Mm. Um, it allows them to live here, to work here, to go to school here, whilst the lead visa holder is here establishing the business so um if there it's a great it's a great visa now the only thing of course with the expansion worker visa is that of course it's a temporary visa so the pbs dependent visa linked to it is temporary it's temporary so, also um, yeah so because you can only go to up to two years maximum on that visa uh so it's a 12 month period then it gets extended for a further 12 months mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you haven't managed to get the company up and running and you haven't managed to achieve things by then then everybody's going home mm-hmm. if it has been achieved then, of course, when the lead visa holder transfers over to a skilled worker visa, then the family can, of course, transfer over onto formal PBS dependent visas, which last for five years. So there's absolutely a way for the family to come with the lead because it'd be a little bit unfair if the lead visa holder disappeared and the family got left abroad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. While they were off. So, no, we, 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 don't, we don't do that. <laughs> What are some of the worries and concerns that family members have outside of the the legal paperwork, everyday issues, everyday problems? You know, coming from a different country, living here in the UK, things are quite different. What what are the typical concerns people have for, for husband and wives? I think the one of the biggest concerns if they have children is, of course, education. So they're looking to see whether or not you know they can get their child into a school, uh, whether it's a private school or into state education. Now, naturally, if they're on a PBS dependent visa and it's an official visa, then you've got the choice of effectively um, going into the state education system. So you don't you don't have to pay. Whereas um, there are certain visas where the only way, of course, education of the child is private education because clearly you're not on a visa which allows you to access state education. So, so you just have to be very, very careful. And again, advice is critical on this: is is to what visa you're on. And I get that as a big concern is you know where are they going to go to school? Also, where are people going to live? I mean, the UK is expensive to live in, um, but then I think most major cities because most people look at coming to London uh, or at least the surrounding area, you know, it, it's expensive. But as long as there's been planning done in advance, then getting somewhere to rent, getting somewhere to buy, there are lots of people who can help and assist with that. What about medical? That's another one that I would imagine is a concern of people. You know, can they come on these visas and partake of the national medical program or... Well, for most visas, um, there will be something called the immigration healthcare surcharge. So, when the visa is applied for, the um, an adult uh, apl- uh, w- with that visa, as part of the cost of the visa, will pay an annual fee um, called the immigration healthcare surcharge. So, for adults, it's um, uh, six hundred and twenty-four pounds per year. For children, it's slightly less; it's four hundred and seventy pounds a year. And w- as long as that. Um, surcharge has been paid and it's normally paid up front in a, in a lump sum. Okay. Uh, so you can find yourself paying a five-year lump sum. Then 
absolutely you've got you could have access to the national health service which is amazing actually considering the fact that you know if you think about it you could find yourself currently if you were paying for a five-year immigration healthcare surcharge as an adult you know it's three thousand one hundred twenty pounds you go and injure yourself and you end up with thousands and thousands of pounds worth of medical and the nhs will look after you so actually funny enough it's an amazing system because most countries around the world certainly wouldn't look after you. They expect you to have private medical care. The UK doesn't. UK doesn't do that. The NHS will look after you, but as long as you've paid that initial um, immigration healthcare surcharge, which you pay at the same time you pay the the fee, the application fee for the visa. Are there certain other restrictions that you have to be careful of if you imagine a couple or a family coming over? What are some of the restrictions? that they have to be careful of in, in terms of leaving the country for a certain periods of time, etc. Well, the UK, when, when you come to the UK on a visa, um, there is a very specific rule in relation to how much time you can spend outside of the UK, depending on whether or not you're going to end up applying for permanent residence at the end of five years, or you're going to go on to naturalise. So it, it's probably worth us just spending a bit of time on this because because it's, it's it can be complex but i will try and simplify it as as, as much as i can um let's use a skilled worker visa okay so someone's coming to the uk they're going to be sponsored by a uk company uh to come and work here and they're going to bring their family okay the skilled worker visa um you can get a skilled worker visa for either three years or five years most people apply for five years because if you get one for three years you have to extend it otherwise you you can't apply for permanent residence until you've achieved five years in the uk so the normal standard rule is if you're on a legal visa in the uk you have to do five years on that visa and then you can apply for permanent residence and uh once you've got permanent residence you're no longer subject to uk immigration control you're free to come and go as you please. But if you then want to decide a year after holding permanent residence, so 12 months after holding permanent residence, that you want to become a British citizen, citizen then you can then apply to naturalise and get a British passport. But there is a rule in relation to how much time you can spend outside the UK in that five-year period. If you breach the rule, then you have a problem because you won't be able to get permanent residence and you certainly won't be able to go on to naturalise. So I always say to clients, look at it from this point of view. If you're going to come to the UK, are you coming here just to get permanent residence, which is fine if you want to and you don't want to get be a dual national, or are you looking at becoming a dual national and getting British citizenship? Britain doesn't have an issue with dual nationality. If you, if you, you know, let's take a US citizen. If a US citizen wants to come here, can they get a British passport? Uh, and does that mean they have to lose their US passport? Well, no, absolutely not. You can. There's loads and loads of Americans that live in the United Kingdom who have a British passport and have a US passport. So we have no issue with that at all. But the reality is, is there are two very distinct routes. If you're coming here with the intention to become British, then you need to comply with what we call the 450-day rule which is you must not be outside the United Kingdom for more than 450 days in aggregate over that five-year period. Okay, so it's 450 days. So it's quite generous, about 90 days a year. But in that five years, you can play with it. So let's say in year one, you had a very, very heavy year and you were outside for 200 days. Then it means that in years two, three, four, and five, you've got 250 days to play with. So you're very limited on how much time. So you have to be very careful. And I always tell people to count the amount of days 
then they're out and keep a very, very clear spreadsheet of the days. I remember having to do that. It was the biggest surprise to me, <laughs> you know, when when there was, I guess, after the first year or something, I got a request for, you know, account for every single day. And I had to go back through my calendar. I, I wasn't prepared for that. To, to your point about being prepared. <laughs> well, I get asked this question all the time. Do they really know? Well, yes, they do know. <laughs> so when every time they come, I get this all the time. I mean, really, are they going to find out? Does the Home Office really know how many days? Well, yes, because every single time you go outside the United Kingdom and you run your passport through the, the e-gate, it registers that you're leaving. So they do know. Uh, so you know you, you can't fib about it on your form. Um, but it is it is important because that 450-day rule, if you comply with the 450-day rule in the first five years, that then allows you to go on to hopefully get permanent residence at the end of year five, but it then allows you to go on to hopefully naturalize once you've held um, permanent residence for 12 months. As long, and this is a very important rule, as long as when we submit the application for you to naturalize, and we look back the previous 12 months and we check just to make sure that you've not been outside the UK for more than 90 days in that 12-month period. It's a very strict 90 days. And if you breach it, then you can't naturalize. So it's really important looking at the days, counting the days is absolutely crucial. But this then brings me on to the second route, the the slightly laxer route. If you only want to get permanent residence and you have no intention of being a British citizen, you're not interested in doing that, there's a much laxer. The rule is as follows. You must not be outside the UK for more than 180 days in each 12-month rolling period over the five years. So you can do 180, 180, 180, 180, 180, and then you can get permanent residence, but then you can't you can't go on to naturalize. Okay? Okay. okay. So we find with a lot of business people where they're traveling all over the world, there's just no way they're going to be able to naturalize because they're never going to keep to the 450-day rule. It's just not going to happen. Um, so the 180-day rule allows for them to, to spend that six months outside, um, but still hopefully get permanent residence at the end of year five. Can we move on to talk about tax in this country, in, in the UK now? Can you provide some broad guidelines for, for people coming from the US just to get a, a sense of how different the tax situation is here in the UK versus the US? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, the reality is, I, I, first of all, I just want to be very clear. I, I am not a UK tax lawyer, so so I don't give advice on UK UK tax, but I work in the department surrounded by some extremely astute UK tax lawyers who uh, love this area of law. Uh, I find it slightly puts me to sleep, but anyway, such is life. Um, but um, yeah, it is a staggeringly complex, but a very, very important area. And what I would say, if I can speak about it in a general way... Um, pre-arrival planning is absolutely critical. I've been given some details by a colleague of mine um, who's an absolute tax expert on this, especially looking at the kind of the the US-UK, and I I will read those out in a minute if that would be helpful, because I think there are some really important points on that. I think the the, the thing that I see more than anything is tax planning, if you want to get a really good tax plan, is you need that probably 12 months ahead of arrival. Okay, you really do need that time and you need to make sure that you arrive before the new financial year, the tax year and tax years around the world differ quite dramatically. Um, The UK runs a non-DOM 
for now system. It might change. There might be slight changes to the non-dom regime, but at the moment we still have this 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 non-dom regime, which ultimately is that you can come as long as you come to the UK and you pay the correct remittance charge, you can effectively live. Uh, without paying money on your offshore uh, income and gains for up to 15 years in the United Kingdom. So if it's done carefully, you know, a person coming from overseas jurisdiction into the UK, you can live relatively tax-free for up to a 15-year period. So if it's done carefully, it really can be very, very, very beneficial. And that's, again, as I said, planning, 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 planning. Um, As I said, in relation to comments made by my colleague, I'm going to just bring those up because, like I said, I think they're they're really, really valuable. And especially if we're talking about Americans, um, the the comments that he's he's, he's stated are as far as follows. Uh, Americans are used to being taxed on a worldwide basis according to citizenship. So it doesn't always register with them that moving abroad might mean that they're entering a new tax jurisdiction. This results in Americans being exposed to double taxation wherever they go, once as a US citizen and again in the country of their residence. And so they need to be very careful when straddling the two different regimes. So we see this a lot. So for Americans, of course, being taxed on their worldwide basis, you can't get her out of that. But the fact is there are things that they must do before they come here and they must look out for and, and have have advice before they, they enter the, the UK. So she so says, pre-arrival planning should always be ideally be completed in the UK tax year prior to becoming UK resident, which means completing no later than the 5th of April. However, US tax, the US tax year ends on the 31st of December, the timing of which therefore catches some Americans out. We see many clients in, say, May who are looking to arrive in September, so the same tax year, and by then it's too late for our best possible planning. So, as I said, having a 12-month plan before you arrive and getting that pre-arrival planning is absolutely critical because otherwise you could get caught in some of these, these, these kind of problems. All high net worth pre-arriving clients should reflect on the sources of wealth on which they draw and and fund UK expenses while they're here. Before arriving, we look to maximise the amount of tax-efficient funds, which is known as clean capital planning. With time, we can generate significant pools of clean capital. Without time, new arrivers can face significant tax burdens on bringing money into the UK. Hence, planning, planning, planning. Many structures that Americans use in their estate planning can be problematic when moving abroad because the UK doesn't necessarily treat those structures in the same manner. US living trusts are considered a substantive offshore trust for UK tax purposes and up to 45% taxation can be applied on, on the, when withdrawing funds. Oh, wow. So, very, <laughs> so, so they're very UK tax inefficient source to live off when in the UK. So you must, must have tax advice pre-arrival if you have a US living trust. Mm -hmm. And then entrepreneurs, small business owners operating through LLCs who then come to the UK could cause that company to be exposed to UK corporation tax and worldwide profits without a credit for US tax levied on the shareholder and the partner. Then when they draw a dividend, personal UK income tax on that dividend can effectively be triggered with no credit for US tax paid. So as you can see, that would be a significant problem for somebody running a, a business. A, a startup, yeah, because they're all structured that way. So basically, if I can summarize, it's kind of like if you don't plan properly, you could basically pay double taxes. Correct. You know, you're going to get a hit from both sides. It's amazing how, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I had a uh, prospective client uh, from Nigeria who had uh, a load of money in Canada. 
and um, he was about to get a big payment from a trust in Canada, uh, and he was going to bring that payment, a few million dollars, to the UK. And I said to him, have you spoken to anybody pre-coming here? And he said, no. It was going to be within about 48 hours. He's going to send the money over. I said, please do not do anything. Please speak to one of the tax guys here. Let them hear what you're going to do. Let them go through what you you know what what the the planning is behind it, the rationale behind it, and then and then let's see if we can maybe do something. So, one of my tax guys jumped on very quickly, about half an hour, chatted to him, and went right. Listen to me. You've got 48 hours, 72 hours. I need to speak to the lawyers in Canada. I need you to draft up this document. You need to sign this document. Okay. If we do that we will save you probably around $600,000. So I can't tell you how important it is because if you think about that, you know, that's a life-changing level of money. Yeah, and, you know, you think about it as a, you know, if people are involved in a startup, they're a founder, they're not in some protected class, if you will, financially. I mean, that kind of thing can, in essence, wreck a company. Absolutely, And and I think the thing about it is, I mean, you know, and I said it right at the beginning, planning, 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 planning. And it doesn't take much, you know, just a couple of telephone calls, um, you know, with an experienced tax lawyer can make such a difference. And I, you know, I have a rule. I don't relocate anybody until they've spoken to the tax, the tax guys. It's as simple as that, uh, because it would be negligent for me to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would never bring somebody into, I mean, you know, if somebody turns around and says, I'm not prepared to listen to them full stop, end off, I'm coming in no matter what. Fine. Okay. You'll look out. There'll be some serious caveats in the letter there or the email to them saying you decided not to do it. You've waived your rights to information. Exactly. (laughs) Funny enough, I've never had anybody say that because the moment that you say, by the way, you could be in for a very, very large bill, they all go, ooh. Can you give us another couple of uh, sort of examples of what can go wrong for people if they don't pay attention to the visa issue or the whatever? I'll give you an example of one recently, and it was with a US citizen, uh, somebody I'm trying to sort out the problem um this was somebody who um was over here uh they were over here on a on a on a skilled worker visa um they decided not to seek assistance at the end they were coming to the end of their skilled worker visa they'd done five years and everything was going well coming up for permanent residence they decided not to seek any formal legal assistance in making the permanent residence application and they got the forms muddled so what they did is they applied to naturalize to become a British citizen uh, rather than apply for permanent residence. Now, some people say, well, okay, big deal. You know, you skip to the, what's the, the implication is absolutely devastating because when you make a permanent residence application, there's a piece of legislation which allows the person, once the application has been submitted, to remain in the country whilst the um, home office make a determination on whether they're going to grant permanent residence. So that that protects that person to remain here. And whilst that application is in, they are legally entitled to be here, live here, work here, so forth. If you, because you never ever make a naturalization application before you get permanent residence, you always have to do permanent residence first. There is no such protection if you make a naturalization application. So what this gentleman did is he applied, got the wrong form, submitted a naturalization application and remained in the country for nine months while the com- while, while the Home Office was making the determination. They, of course, rejected it because they went, well, you're not entitled to be a British citizen because you haven't applied for permanent residence. 
But worse than that, they then turned around because he immediately realized he submitted the wrong form. He then applied for, for permanent residence and they went, no, because you should have done that nine months ago. And so you've now been living here illegally. Ah. And he had to leave the UK immediately. He's now subject to a 12-month ban. And there's a danger that when he makes another application to come into the UK that he may be banned by the Home Office because he's what we call an illegal overstayer, albeit he had done the five years. And that was just purely because he hadn't sought advice because he didn't know what he was was doing. And I just, you know, I I get this from people. uh, And I really, and and I can't stress this enough. I get people saying, you know, UK immigration... You know, it's it's an on, it's an online form. I've heard this yeah. a thousand times. It's an online form. I can fill it out myself if you want to. And I, I, my my um, uh, mentor who taught me uh, uh, UK immigration was one of the leading immigration lawyers in the country, a guy called Graham Kirk, uh, who I've known for many years. And he said, when anybody ever says that to me, I say two words: good luck. <laughs> and it's it's you know it's it, it's crazy they are there are complex rules that they it looks easy and you can be lulled so easily into believing that you can do it i would call it the diy risk but it's amazing how many people sit there and go well it's just an online form it, it, it's not it's not just an online form because unless you know the uk immigration rules and you know them well there are some really nasty little traps in there and you can fall into them very easy. And this poor chap genuinely thought he was saving himself some money. You know, people aren't trying to be crooks or criminals. They're they're just, you know, especially say somebody coming associated with a startup, they're driven, you know, they're being pulled a million different directions. They want to get, this doesn't look like it's at the top of the queue. You know, if somebody is going to relocate permanently, temporarily, whatever, you got to do it the right way. And in the end, it's going to save you money and time to do it properly and to get somebody to who knows what they're doing. Yeah. And, and, and it should be it should be completely pain free. If you've got the right advisors and you've and you've got the time, there is absolutely no reason for, for the client to be stressed at all. The stress is on our shoulders. It's not on theirs. Mm. Everything they just they just provide us with the information we do all the sorting out for them. We do the complete hand-holding. It's, a, it's, it's about, it's such a human part of the law. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people don't like talking to lawyers because they, you know, uh, I, they see these, these kind of faceless, distant, expensive nightmares, basically. Mm. And, I, and I can understand from certain areas of law where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. But but really in the human side of it, um, and, and immigration is one. And I think tax and estate planning because it's so personal to people. Mm. We are there. Not, we're not there to be ogres. We're not there to be distant. We're not there to be faceless. We're there to literally look after you. It's our job. It's a bit like a doctor. You know what I mean? They deal with the medical side. We deal with the clerical side. We look after you. And our job is to make life easier, yeah, better, to prepare you for those issues. And for us to look at the road ahead and see the bumps in the road mm-hmm. and prepare you for them so that you're fully armed when they come and so you don't notice them so you know and that's what and that's what we and that's what we do um but it can also be an incredibly exciting experience coming to a new country a new place you know new culture um you know there's so many things to see and do here well you've given us just a superb amount of information my god my head is reeling (laughs) it's been incredibly informative and uh, you are very approachable charles so i would encourage anyone listening to this uh this podcast who needs further advice around the issues of 
immigrating, especially to the UK, uh, to, to contact Charles. We appreciate your time and thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much indeed. Well, Shelley, that was uh, packed with lots and lots of information. Um, I suspect some of our listeners may be listening to this episode twice or three times and taking notes, especially for those who are looking to come from the US through to the UK to work here. Yeah, you're right about it being packed full of information, um, which was excellent. Uh, I would say that all of the information goes under one heading, which is planning and preparation. And, you know, I, I think uh, Charles uh, emphasized that, but I think it's worth closing on that topic as well. Because, you know, what, what it was interesting to me is him talking about the one year in advance planning. I mean, that's an interesting concept because most of us, and I would say a lot of uh, startups or younger companies that are just moving a mile a minute anyway, don't necessarily think about that kind of time horizon. And yet he was very articulate about the kinds of issues that can avoid or the kinds of issues, problems that one could fall into without that kind of preparation. And the discussion on visas, for example, that was very interesting to me, talking about the kind of progression of visas if one wants to eventually be naturalized or not or whatever, but what you need to begin with and the number of days. Mm. The area around taxation caught my attention. Uh, he had one of his tax partners uh, give him some information, which he, which he read out, and uh, some of that is really complex. Obviously, the tax scenario here in the UK is very involved, especially if you're coming from the US. The tax legislation is very different here. And so it is really, really important to get proper advice on that. Well, and you know, saving time, because if you're a startup founder or participant and you're relocating, the time that you will spend given a mistake is going to be much more than the time you might spend up front to do it all correctly. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. We love hearing your feedback and questions, so get in touch. Email hello at startupsensations.com. You can message us or send a voice note on WhatsApp. You'll find the number in the description. The Startup Sensations Podcast. <laughs>